Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and whether you're joining us here in person or you're joining us online, we're just grateful to be together. We are continuing in our series in the book of Genesis. We're going through chapters 1 to 11. It's our origin series. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to Genesis 6, and we're going through to chapter 7, so you can keep your Bibles open there. Well, earlier this week, I received a phone call telling me that my Amazon order could not be processed because they were missing some critical information. And in order to talk to a customer service representative, I needed to press one. Now, I didn't have an Amazon order, but I still decided to press one. Yeah. So when they asked me for my reference number, I didn't have it. And then he asked me for my name. I said, my name's Graham Dover. No. <laughs> I said another obviously fictitious name. My name is John Smith. And uh, the man said, the man knew it was obviously a fake. He said some very unkind things to me that shall not be repeated in church. And then he slammed the phone down on me. Of course, this was a scam call. The person behind the call was trying to get some financial information from me in order to swindle me. Now, most of us have encountered either calls or text messages or even emails like this. Emails like, you know, from your pastor saying, I need you to pick up some gift cards from me because I have no time to do it myself, right? No, never happened. I think it's happened here a couple times. And we, most of us don't fall for them. And we just tend to laugh them off and not think that they are a big deal because they happen so frequently. But doesn't that tell you something about the world that we live in? where people are intentionally trying to defraud others out of their money, and we're so used to such things that when we hear about them, we're kind of indifferent. But I have actually had loved ones who have been scammed in this way, and not only have they lost money, but what's worse is they have lost dignity. They have felt ashamed that they, felt for, that they fell for it, embarrassed that they were trusting. When they've been told uh, when I've been told how it impacted them, um, I'm no longer unconcerned or indifferent. In fact, it makes me angry. And what I want from my loved one more than anything is justice. Now, this kind of immoral behavior is small compared to the other evil atrocities that are pervading our world. Like, we still are seeing how wars wage in places like Ukraine and Myanmar, and there are drug cartels that continue to run rampant throughout uh, the southern hemisphere and into the northern hemisphere, and there's human trafficking in our own province. And on top of that, many of us experience the consequences of evil daily in our own lives, stemming from broken and even abusive relationships. With all that is going on, some of us may wonder, where is God in all of this? And how can he just allow these kinds of things to continue without a response? Where is the justice in that, God? In this morning's passage, we see that God is not blind to the evil things that take place in our world. And God certainly isn't indifferent about evil. He does and will administer justice. 
But Genesis 6-7 also show us that God's long arm of justice isn't indiscriminate. He does not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. The innocent do not perish for the sins of the guilty. Make no mistake, this is a story about judging evil, but it is also a story about trust and grace and salvation. It is a story that exalts you and I to walk faithfully with a just God. Let's read Genesis 6 to 7. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, And his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. And with them, the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with the Lord. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird and of every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation and take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth, every living creature that I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodwaters of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. And they had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark, and the animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God commanded Noah, and then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The water rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. And every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Well, this account of Noah, his ark, and the flood is probably one of the most well-recognized Bible stories. Ask people who aren't familiar about Scripture to recall some story from the Bible, and many of them will be able to recognize the story of Noah's ark. I find it fascinating, though, how for most people, this biblical account has become a story that has nothing to do, though, with sin and judgment. Noah and his ark full of animals are most often depicted in cute cartoon fashion all over baby accessories and toys. Uh, when our children were young, Andrew and I had a playpen uh, with an ark motif on it. And even many churches will decorate their Sunday school classrooms or their nurseries with images of Noah and the animals having a good time enjoying their Middle Eastern cruise. But the scriptures that we just read, they don't seem cute or happy to me. And it certainly seems foreign to the watered-down tale that many people are familiar with. See, one of the main things we learn from this passage of scripture is that God, he sees the sin and wickedness in our world. In Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then in verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. 
You know, over the last few weeks we've been going through this series, we have seen how evil has infested the earth and began to grow, corrupting the good world that God had made. It began first with Adam and Eve, right? By disobeying God, choosing to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By doing so, they chose their independence, right? That they would decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong rather than living in dependence on God as they were designed by their creator to do. And then we see sin swell in chapter four when Cain kills his brother Abel. And then it begins to snowball as Cain's great, 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 great grandson Lamech He disobeys God's design for marriage, which is one man and one woman for life. And instead, Lamech takes two wives for himself. And then he goes about boasting about his violent exploits, including murder. Now, we cannot be sure how many years lay between the time of Adam and the days of Noah because it's likely thousands of years. The genealogies that are found in Genesis, they are not intended to be exhaustive. But one thing is clear. Sin continues to progress, and the brokenness and evil that pervade this world continues to spiral out of control. Now, At the very beginning of this chapter, we have this odd account recorded in verses 1 to 4. And I even debated whether or not I would dress them or not. But because they have piqued so many people's curiosity, I thought I better do so. These verses are about the sons of God marrying the daughters of humans and bearing children referred to them as the Nephilim. Now, there has been a lot of speculation and a variety of explanations given to uh, who each of these characters are and what their impact on this story is. Some people believe that these verses are describing a transgression where rebellious angels, known as the sons of God, were having sexual relations with human women, giving birth to demigods, right? Superhumans known as the Nephilim. You know, and if you've seen Russell Crowe's version of Noah's Ark, you'd see these are wild-looking creatures. That's one explanation. On the other hand, commentator John Walton, he suggests that what's happening here is that ancient kings, they ascribe this term to themselves, sons of God, right? And they did this to deify their status, right? So that they would look to the commoners as gods, And what the narrator of Genesis is describing in these verses is the practice of the rite of first night. Walton says, In this practice, the local authority, whether king, governor, or lord, imposes his will on the people by demanding and exercising the right to spend the first night with any woman who is being married. This practice is extremely oppressive and was known to exist in the ancient world. So, here we have two explanations, but both of them show how, how the fall of society is continuing to progress, taking f- further steps away from God and his good purposes for his creation. But I think another explanation is the most valid, but unfortunately for some of us, this explanation does away with any of the sensational speculation. 
Theologian Sandra Richter and John Salehammer both suggest that Genesis 1 to 4, they aren't a prologue to the flood narrative. Rather, what they are is an epilogue or a conclusion to the genealogy recorded in Genesis chapter 5, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. You see, our original scriptures, they didn't have these large chapter numbers or even the small verse numbers that our Bibles have today. Those were added much later in order to make our Bibles easier to navigate. But there are places where these numbers have been added that actually add confusion and make things less clear. And this passage, this may be one place where that's happening. Salhammer writes, if Genesis 6, 1 to 4 serve as a conclusion to the summary of chapter 5, there is little to arouse suspicion that the events recounted here are anything out of the ordinary. They may be only a reminder that sons and daughters of Adam had increased greatly uh, in number and married and continued to have children. This text is simply describing humankind in the midst of their everyday affairs. This would be similar to how Jesus describes this scene in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. The term Nephilim is used in the Old Testament just to describe great men of old. In Numbers 13, it's used specifically to refer to mighty men living in the land of Canaan at the time of the Exodus, not demigods. Salhammer continues to say that the titles, sons of God and daughters of men, are simply designations that are in keeping with the earlier accounts of their origins of men and women that we saw in Genesis 2 and 3. There, uh, man is created by the breath of God and woman from the man's side. Thus, men are called sons of God, denoting their origin from God, and women are called the daughters of man, denoting their origin from man's side. But regardless of what is happening in verses 1 to 4, verses 5 and 12 of Genesis 6 makes a clear point that violence and corruption have reached critical mass on the earth, that God sees it, and now a divine response is inevitable. But the scriptures also say something that is truly fascinating. God not only sees the corruption and wickedness in the world, but the text says that God is moved emotionally by what he sees. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. The Lord's heart was deeply troubled. And again in verse 7, God says, For I regret that I have made them. These are astounding descriptions of God. Often people think God is just unconcerned or that he is just some impassive deity. But the God of the Bible cares deeply for his creation. He is passionate about people and how we behave. Genesis 3 shows us that God took this enormous risk creating this world and giving humans our freedom. And in this passage, we see God's vulnerability. Here we see the wounded spirit of the artist whose work has been rejected. We see the broken heart of the lover 
whose love is not returned. God is not emotionless, nor is he impervious to the joys or the sorrows that you and I experience. Rather, God is deeply invested in caring for this world. He loves it. He enters into this world with all of its brokenness and pain. And in Genesis 6, it points us to his suffering, God's broken heart at what has transpired, as what has developed in this world. You know, I, for one, am comforted to know that God is deeply grieved by the brokenness in this world. Aren't you? Have you ever felt a similar sense of pain or regret in a relationship? Now, some of us may struggle with the word regret here in the Bible. First of all, because regret kind of conveys that God didn't know that things were going to turn out this bad. It seems to contradict the scriptures that speaks of God's omniscience, right? That he's all-knowing. He even knows the future, what will take place in it. But we can acknowledge that God can have regrets without having to deny that he knows the future. Our God is so big, he's beyond our human understanding. I think the bigger struggle that many of us have is the fact that God says he regrets making humans. Believing then that this shows that, you know, that God doesn't care very much for us. But I would actually say the opposite is true. That God regrets having made humans in this passage shows how much God cares about us. So much so that our destructive behavior troubles his heart greatly. You see, I've heard and seen similar regrets in the lives of parents whose child has, their, they, their, their child has run so wild that they have had to take extreme measures such as kicking them out of the house because they are so toxic and yet the parents love them still so deeply. I know parents who have had to get restraining orders against their grown-up child as his life continues to spiral out of control, full of violence and corruption, spending time in and out of jail, spreading pain and suffering to the lives of others and himself and only compounding his parents' grief. I hope that none of us have or ever will have to experience that type of sorrow. And it may seem harsh to us, but I can understand the parents who whisper in the depth of their sorrow, it would have been better if he had never been born. But heaven forbid that we ever suggest that they do not love him. And so we should not take God's regret here as a sign that he does not care deeply about people because our God does. The Lord saw the evil in Noah's day and it grieved him and the Lord sees the evil in our day and it grieves him just as much. Just because we continue to experience evil and it seems that there is no divine justice coming doesn't mean that God doesn't care and that decisive action won't eventually take place. However, I think that there is another problem. And I think it's with our human desire for justice. And that is, we do want justice, but we want it on our terms, 
See, we wish that God would intervene and that he would put a stop to those other people who commit evil and atrocities. Evil according to our judgment, according to our evaluation. But when we read accounts of God's judgment in the Bible, like when he enacts justice like in this flood story, I think it makes us very uncomfortable and can even cause us to fear. Fear that his judgment may not only have implication for evil and evildoers, but possibly fear that God's judgment may have implications for us or for those that we care about. I think this is because we understand that our idea of justice and God's ideas of justice, they often do not line up. Perhaps this is one of the motivations for this wholesale retelling of the narrative of Noah as just a kid's story rather than an account of God's judgment of human sin. I know personally the temptation to forego telling people about God's judgment when it comes to sharing Christianity or the good news of the gospel. For some Christians, it seems you know, sharing about God's judgment has completely left our vocabulary when it comes to talking about Christianity. And maybe this is because we have seen how others have abused this sort of language in the past with like turn or burn sermons or encountering Christians who have been extremely judgment, judgmental and they've neglected to share about God's grace, nor do they display any of his mercy in their own lives. And so we can be tempted to swing the pendulum to the other extreme and never mention that when Christ returns, the Bible says he returns to judge. 2 Timothy 4 says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge— Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say things, to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It's understandable that we have a hard time listening about a righteous God bringing judgment. But Genesis 6 and 7 shows us that God sees and cares about what's wrong in our world and that he will judge it. So we don't have to wonder, will justice ever come? But we also don't need to fear that God's judgment will be executed too swiftly or in a fit of rage. 2 Peter 3 reminds us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. He's patient with you and me. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God desires for each of us to walk with him. He desires for all of us to, to be saved and for us and to save others because of our relationship with him. You see, something very interesting takes place in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6. Because of God's grief over sin, he intends to destroy all the living things on the earth, 
right? And every human and every, every creature. But then suddenly, it seems like God changes his mind and he alters the plan. Some, you know, it says, The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I've made them. But Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So not only does God see all the violence and corruption in our world, but God also sees those who are faithful. And no amount of violence in this world can obstruct God's view of those who remain faithful to him. Even though they may be massively outnumbered. Remember how 2 Peter says, God is not wanting anyone to perish? Because of this desire, God is willing to alter his plans. He is willing to change course because of his compassion and faithfulness to those who walk with him. Now, some of you who struggled with me saying that God has regrets may now also struggle with me saying God changes his plans. And this can be def- difficult to reconcile with your theologies and the, the scriptures that speak about God's unchanging nature. Perhaps thinking about God changing plans makes him appear fickle or impulsive. But there are other accounts in scripture where God suddenly changes course. Remember the story about Jonah? This prophet who was given this message to preach by God to the wicked Ninevites. And the message God gave him was 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But when the Ninevites hear this, they repent. They change their ways. They call out to God. And it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Or what about in Exodus 32, where God is about to destroy the Israelites because they built that golden calf of theirs. But Moses intervenes and he pleads with God and God relents. I think Jeremiah 18 explains it the best, where God takes the prophet to the house of the potter who is reforming clay into different shapes and God uses this as a metaphor about his prerogative to change his mind. God says, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at any other time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. See, what I see in these passages where God changes course is his propensity to show mercy. And that's just what he does here in Genesis 6 and 7. Humanity's evil and corruption lead God to undo his creation, to destroy every living thing. But Noah causes God to alter the plan. And in his mercy, God will rescue Noah 
and his family and some of the creation as well. Verse 9 tells us why God saved Noah, what sets him apart. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. When the text identifies Noah as righteous, it's not implying that he deserved to be spared because somehow Noah had earned God's grace. Rather, it's speaking about Noah's refusal to conform to his world by being obedient to God. Let me say that again. Noah's righteousness is about Noah's refusal to conform to his world by being obedient to God. What sets him apart is that he walked faithfully with God, the text says. This is the same phrase that was used with Enoch back in chapter 5, verse 24, who never experienced death because God took him away. And the word righteous, we know, is a relational word. It's about being in right relationship. And though he was not perfect, verse 9 indicates that Noah lived according to God's design, making an effort to be in a right relationship with others and with himself, with the creation, and of course, in a right relationship with his creator. There's no doubt that because Noah walked faithfully with God, that he would have been considered by many in his generation as simply an oddball, particularly when he started constructing that ark in the middle of the dry desert. But walking faithfully with God, it will do that to you. It will make others think you're an oddball. When I worked at Trinity Western University as a resident director, part of my job was to hire students who oversaw, oversaw the dorms. They were called RAs, or resident assistants. And there was a young man I knew there, Steve, who lived in one of the dorms I over, that I oversaw. And without a doubt, people would describe him as an oddball. Steve wore a fanny pack everywhere he went, so large he could fit his Bible in it. Not a pocket version. Steve would tuck his pants, the bottom of his pants, into his socks when it rained so that he wouldn't get them wet when he walked from building to building. He would clear food scraps from other students' trays so that they wouldn't end up in the trash, and he would take them back to his dorm room where he had a compost going that I am positive the university didn't know about and wouldn't have looked friendly upon had they known about it. Steve was one of the most unusual people you would ever meet, but what made him unusual was not these quirks. Rather, what made him really stick out was his walk with God. He would get up at 5 a.m. every morning, and he would go to the common student lounge, and he would tidy it up just so he could bless the other students. At 6 o'clock in the morning, he would run a prayer meeting and Bible study, which when I would get up sometimes to attend, I was always astounded how well attended it was. He would make friends. He would take time to make friends with the custodial staff on campus who were overlooked by most. And he always modeled love and a servant's heart. And then I remembered when he applied to become a resident assistant to oversee the dorms. And my colleagues and I who 
did the hiring. We looked at the character qualifications for the job, and Steve met every single one of them better than any other applicant we ever had. However, we didn't give him the job because we feared that the other students wouldn't accept his leadership. And I regretted that decision the moment that we made it. The next year when he applied again, still as odd as ever, but just as exemplary in character, I, I insisted that he be given the job, right? Given the chance to be a leader. You know, in, in the areas that counted, Steve was top of the class. But unfortunately, my colleagues still feared that his awkwardness would overshadow his righteousness, and they overruled me, and once again, he wasn't given the position. However, only a couple days later, another department at the school called me up, and they asked me for a reference about him mentoring a group of first-year students. And I told them about the concerns our department had, but I urged them to hire him because he modeled a faithful walk with God. And he, I was told, a little while later, a report that he was such an excellent hire for that department that when they were shorthanded, rather than hiring a, another person to lead a second group, they decided that they were going to give him two groups of students to disciple. He was odd, like Noah. But what made them both odd wasn't fanny packs or ark building. What makes people like these remarkable is their refusal to give in to the ways of the world and their commitment to walk faithfully with the Lord. And that's God's intention for you and I as well. It's to refuse to give in to the ways of this world and to walk faithfully with Jesus. Like Noah, God wants us to walk faithfully with him. You see, when we walk faithful with God, like Noah did, we don't have to fear that God's justice won't be full of mercy and grace. Instead, as we walk with him, our hearts will be deeply grieved over the sin and the wickedness of our world that grieves God's heart, including our own sin. And we will be moved to pray and intervene in those things rather than being apathetic or pessimistic or only caring about the things that affect us. As we walk with God, we will experience firsthand his love and concern and we'll trust that when he judges, he will be fair and compassionate because we will have experienced his loving compassion firsthand in our own lives. And just as Noah was spared, when you and I walk with God through faith in Christ, we are also saved from death, which the Bible says is the consequences of sin. And we are given the gift of reconciliation and eternal life with him. You know, friends, this story has far more grace in it than appears at first glance. Because of Noah's faithful walk with the Lord, others are also rescued from this flood. Genesis 6.18 says, God says to Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So Noah receives salvation and blessing in a covenant with God, but his wife, sons, and daughter-in-laws are also spared. 
Now, I'm not saying that we can receive salvation as some sort of family inheritance like some people think that they're Christians because their parents or their grandparents are. But I think the, the lesson here is that our relationship with God will impact those close to us. Our relationship with God, it will impact those close to us, whether for better or for worse. It's easy for us to imagine the kind of negative impact a person who professes to be a Christian but is unkind and merciless and angry has on those around them. But for the one who walks faithfully with God, where there is fruit of the Spirit, where there is maturity into Christ-likeness, this should make us distinct. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, this, this is because the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we should become like him. I love how he uses this metaphor of this aroma of Christ. That the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we will smell like Jesus. Have you ever noticed how if you spent time with a person, that their scent remains with you, even if they've left after a while. And that smell, Paul says, is pleasing to God and to those that we come in contact with. You see, that aroma of Jesus, which now pervades our lives and our actions and our obedience, it comes across to them as one of two things. And we can't control it. it. That's up to their nose, right? Just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, scent is in the nose of the smeller, right? But it comes across as one of two things. It either comes across the stench of life, the stench of death, I should say, or the sweet aroma of life. Our walk with God should either attract them or convict them. Either way, leading them by the Spirit to repentance and eternal life as they place their hope and trust in Jesus. And see, the story of this flood, it shows that our actions don't just have consequences for ourselves. The sinfulness of humanity causes great devastation for all of creation. But Noah's faithful walk with God, it benefits his family and the creation too when these animals are rescued. And this holds for our actions today as well. They do not just have consequences for ourselves. When we walk faithfully, it doesn't just go well for us. It should bless others as well and it should bless the earth and all of creation too. You know, God cares for his creation and in the in this account, his efforts to save it should remind us again of his commands to humanity back in Genesis chapter 2 to care for this earth, that we are to be stewards of creation. But what sets Noah apart is that he walked faithfully with God. You know, before they were referred to as Christians, those who trusted Jesus they were, they were called his disciples, his followers, his apprentices. And I really like those titles because they remind us that more than just identifying with a set of beliefs, we are identified by a relationship. 
with someone who profoundly changes and shapes our lives. And this relationship not only impacts us, but has an influence on the world around us. See, being a Christian isn't just about having the right beliefs, but walking faithfully with Jesus. Let me say that again. Being a Christian isn't just about having the right beliefs, but about following Jesus faithfully. As the story unfolds, we see that Noah's faithful walk is expressed by obeying God's command. The story makes a point of saying it twice. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. In his case, it was obeying God's instructions for building this ark. Following Jesus is rarely that straightforward, but often just as difficult. Thankfully, we never walk alone. We have God's word and his spirit to guide us. We have the help of others in the community of faith to come alongside of us. And we also have God's love and forgiveness for when we get it wrong. Next week, as we continue talking about this flood story, we see that the waters come. They do destroy all life on the earth except for those that God saved in the ark. And though we don't like to talk about it much, this flood account should remind us that there is a reality of a final judgment to come when Jesus returns and brings God's justice. That reminder of future judgment should not only leave us anticipating our future hope and salvation, but it should also impact how you and I live our lives today. Not only that they honor God, but also that others may come to know and follow him. First Peter 2, Peter ex- exhorts us. He says, Live such good lives among the unbelievers that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So friends, don't just call yourself a Christian. Be his disciple. Don't just believe Jesus says even the demons believe and shudder, but let us follow Christ. Don't just attend church and read the Bible, but let's be apprentices to Christ and be formed in his image and do what it says. And let us not just live nice, quiet Canadian lives. But let us live such good lives, though others accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds, they may see our faithful walk with Jesus, so that they too will glorify him on the day that he visits us.